The following message is copyrighted by Westminster Theological Seminary. Duplication, distribution, or other use of all or any part of this message is not permitted without prior written consent. Please direct your inquiries to communications at wts.edu. For all other information, please visit the main website at www.wts.edu. I think I, I pretty much covered everything I wanted to say with regard to um, the theological distinctives of um, rabbinic theology. And uh, again, assuming that the Pharisees that we read about in the Gospels anticipate uh, that there is some continuity between them and the, um, um, the type of Judaism that uh, crystallized, if you will, after A.D. 70. And... Um, this is, you know, all very important for a variety of reasons. One of them that uh, anytime you pick something up, commentary or whatever, dealing especially with the Gospels, you're likely to come across references to rabbinic literature or um, uh, concepts, what have you. And um, there's a lot of information that needs to be assessed critically. Uh, you want to be careful not to jump to conclusions about, you know, one way or another, in a positive or a negative light, regarding this, these documents. And um, at the same time, you don't want to ignore it. And uh, keeping always in mind, always in mind the, um, the debate concerning the, um, the historical value of some of these materials, uh, trying to get a sense of um, what were the theological problems that created the conflict, the polemic uh, between Jesus and the Pharisees. Uh, some reflection that can be helpful. The article by Saldarini in the um, Anchor Bible Dictionary that you're supposed to read, uh, that's a very up-to-date, fairly... Um, how shall I put it? Uh, I don't want to give the impression that there's a uniform viewpoint on these things, but uh, Salary is fairly balanced. He tries to understand Phariseeism in the light of um, um, you know, social sciences to some degree, and although uh, he's not an evangelical, and I think the article is lacking in the theological area, at least he provides for you... Um, most of the relevant information that we can deal with. Uh, one of the advantages of Saldarini's work is that he's fairly, he's very cautious. He, uh, he warns you uh, all the time, particularly in his book. I don't know whether I listed that. Um, yeah, I listed that on, on page six. Uh, Saldarini, Pharisees, Scribes, and Sadducees in Palestinian Society, a Sociological Approach. Uh, in that book especially, uh, you know, Repeatedly, he reminds uh, the reader that uh, we are not really able to draw firm conclusions about many of the questions that arise simply because the data that's available to us is not complete. So um, I thought that if you um, 
if you took a look at that article, which I realize it's a little bit on the long side, and I'm not asking you to um, to um, get all the details on that reading. You, I will not be asking you any questions that come directly out of out of that reading. You know, what did Saldarini say about such and such? But it does provide for you a, a little bit of a broader and more up-to-date framework than, than Loza is able to give you. And I think it can be of help in, um, in trying to understand the material. And so indirectly, uh, when, when the exam comes, you'll be a little bit better prepared. Any questions on uh, rabbinic Judaism? OK, yeah. All that, all that uh, we know for sure is that during those two centuries, uh, there, it appeared that it appears that throughout that period, the leadership of what later came to be known as Rabbinic Judaism seemed to be focused on two individuals. Um, there is some information in the later literature that suggests that these two figures were also the officials, the heads of, again, see, the problem, is it Sanhedrin, is it a great assembly? Uh, there's, there are a lot of unknowns about uh, the organization of, of the Jewish uh, um, leaders uh, during that period. Um, but um, I think that's all you really need to keep in mind, that they seem to be heading up most of the um, theological instruction and, and the um, uh, interpretation of, of the law, uh, conduct, and so on. That they were probably tied to something like, something like the Sanhedrin, but you know we just don't know for sure it is possible. Well, <clears throat> if you don't have anything else, let's move on to the linguistic uh, milieu in Palestine. Remember that the exam next Tuesday uh, will cover. Uh, this area of language and translation as well as what we have already uh, dealt with. I hope to um, have plenty of time on Monday for any questions you may have regarding the test on Tuesday. So um, you will be well advised to do most of your studying you know, from now until Saturday when you can so that Anything that comes up in your reading and your reviewing, you can bring it up on Monday. Um, and uh, hopefully that will be of some help to you as you try to tie things together. Yeah? It's pretty much this, the same type of exam that you have on the circulation desk. I think the only, don't, don't um, tie me down to this now, but I think, I think there are about 40 multiple choice questions and two matching questions instead of one, I believe. No essays for this uh, exam, right? Okay. <clears throat> Say a little bit about the, um, the Semitic languages that were spoken in Palestine about this, uh, about this time. Semitic, you realize that um, beginning with the 18th century, uh, linguists, scholars uh, interested in languages, became aware, in a way that was not true before, that um, 
certain languages appear to have a genetic connection with other languages. It's not simply that they were similar. It's that you could see patterns of correspondences that could only be explained if those languages had a common origin. Now, this whole thing developed especially at the end of the 18th century when uh, a British scholar uh, happened to be working in India and uh, a very careful study of Sanskrit, which was the ancient uh, language of India, uh, made it perfectly plain to him that the, the grammatical structure of the language uh, corresponded to that of Greek and it corresponded to that of Latin. And uh, as a result of that investigation, some further work, it was established that you have this humongous family called the Indo-European family of languages that um, includes most of the languages of Europe, not all of them, but most of them, uh, but English and the Germanic languages is part of this family, the Indo-European uh, family, but it is Indo-European because you have uh, some languages um, beyond Europe in, in India that uh, clearly belong to the same family. So that you have to, you know, postulate and, um, and there's some archaeological um, confirmation of this that uh, even the, um, the people who, who uh, spoke this language in India had originally come from somewhere in Eastern Europe and, uh, and had traveled uh, in, in, the, in prehistoric times, really, uh, to India. That's the Indo-European uh, family. Now, Greek is one of them, and we'll talk, we'll talk about Greek in, in a minute, but first I want to talk about the Semitic family of languages. Now, following the same type of um, linguistic investigation, which is known as comparative linguistics or comparative philology, um, we can identify a group of languages distinct from Indo-European languages, but languages that have a common, probably a common origin, and we give it the term Semitic. That comes from uh, the name Shem. In, in the Old Testament. Now, linguists often uh, speak about a proto-language. Here would be proto-Semitic. This is simply a way of saying, look, we believe that in prehistoric times there was a language or at least a group of languages from which the Semitic languages derive, originated. The, um, there's some debate about how to classify them, but a common way of doing it is to think of uh, the so-called East Semitic, East Semitic, and this is primarily the Akkadian languages. Now, Akkadian includes Babylonian, Assyrian, a series of dialects of each of those. That's East Semitic. And uh, this is the language that was written down in the cuneiform signs in the clay tablets and so on. Then uh, there's uh, South Semitic, and that includes primarily Arabic, Ethiopic, Epigraphic, South Arabian, uh, some other stuff like that. 
But the one that we're interested in is another branch called Northwest Semitic. Northwest Semitic. Uh, Northwest Semitic, in turn, is divided into two subfamilies. Uh, one is called Canaanite. The other one is called Aramaic. <coughs> now, among the Canaanite languages, you have such uh, things as uh, Phoenician, Moabite, <coughs> the others, but also Hebrew. See, from a historical or comparative perspective, Hebrew is simply a Canaanite dialect. And it is very easy to demonstrate that. Now, we have reason to think that when Abraham came to Palestine, he was speaking probably a, a very ancient form of Aramaic because his family came from Haran, which is the, the upper uh, uh, area. Let me show you something here. There it is, Mediterranean. Palestine, uh, Tigris and Euphrates. Um, of course, Abraham was called from Ur of the Chaldees in this area, but his family was from Haran up here, which was all this area was Aramaic-speaking uh, peoples. And although you cannot prove it, it, it's very reasonable to assume that that was his language, some very ancient form of Aramaic. When he comes to Palestine, of course, he has, he has to live among all these Canaanite tribes and communicate with them. Um, eventually, the um, Hebrews go to Egypt, and then they return. Uh, but uh, we have to assume that Abraham's family and his descendants adopted the Canaanite language. And as that Canaanite language was spoken by the Hebrews, it took on you know, its own shape and form, and so it has some differences with Phoenician, with Moabite, and with a few other um, uh, dialects that we can identify. Aramaic uh, eventually needs, see, that needs to be um, subdivided into several dialects as well, primarily East and West, and the thing that is of interest right now to us is that by New Testament times, you have a particular form of Aramaic, which is normally referred to as Jewish-Palestinian Aramaic. Jewish-Palestinian Aramaic. This is presumably the language that uh, Jesus learned in the home up in uh, Nazareth. Jewish-Palestinian Aramaic. Um, for your edification, you don't need to know this, but uh, just, so, just to round things out a little bit. The reason why we have to distinguish Western and Eastern Aramaic is that um, the Jews in, in Babylon also spoke Aramaic, and that is uh, known as uh, Jewish-Babylonian Aramaic. And there's some important differences between that and the language spoken in Palestine. 
In addition, I think it may be useful for you to appreciate that the language that we know as Syriac, Syriac is simply another Eastern Aramaic dialect. This can get a little bit confusing, especially because in modern times there is a country known as Syria. They do not speak Syriac. They speak Arabic in Syria. And uh, again, for your edification, in case you ever come across people uh, who... This is really confusing. Don't even try to write this down for the time being. But uh, there are descendants of the Aramaic-speaking people uh, who have lived, for example, in northern Iran and Iraq and so on. And they speak a modern form of Aramaic, but they refer to themselves as Assyrians, Assyrians, and they trace their origins back to the Assyrians, which is probably not true, but they take uh, some... They, they take... Uh, <laughs> They take pride in that, while at the same time feeling very guilty because they know that the Assyrians back then were, you know, monstrous in their... Um, but anyway, the reason I'm going through all of this is um, the, the modern Assyrian church, because they, they are Christians, most of them, you know, there is an Assyrian church specifically. They take a lot of pride also in their language, the Aramaic language, which is really Syriac, but they would never call it Syria because that, that sounds like Syria and Arabic. And that's the last thing, you know, you want to be associated with Arabs and Islam and what have you. Uh, so they call it Aramaic simply. And uh, they argue that the New Testament was originally, some of them, not all of them, but, uh, but many of them argue that the New Testament was written in Aramaic originally. And uh, some of you may have heard of a, a writer called George Lamsa, who has written a number of books, some of them actually helpful in some respects, because he tries to understand the New Testament in the light of some of the Near Eastern background and so on. But his presupposition is that the, the original language of the New Testament was Aramaic, what scholars would call Syriac, an Eastern form of Aramaic and then try to understand what you read in, in the light of that. That is probably, uh, in fact, almost certainly wrong. But uh, everything tends to get tied, tied up here. For example, when we talked about the Targums, they were written Aramaic. And so sometimes when you're studying the New Testament, there are some interesting or unusual uh, words or forms of expression. And the question arises, uh, to what degree uh, did the Aramaic, the Jewish Palestinian Aramaic, spoken in Palestine, presumably by Jesus, may have influenced the Greek that was spoken in, also in Palestine. Now, there's, there's a lot of debate about some of these things. Uh, there's debate, for example, about all the various forms of Aramaic, which is the one that... that approximates most closely what Jesus would have spoken. There's one school of thought that says, oh, what you do is you go to the Jewish, uh, to the Palestinian Targum, and that gives you the, the closest approximation to the language of Jesus. 
Others say, no, you go to Qumran, because in Qumran there are a number of Aramaic documents, and that is closer in time, so that's the closest approximation. And uh, some of this gets very, very technical, uh, but it can be of real value. And when we talk about Greek, I'll give you a couple of examples of how some knowledge of, of the Aramaic background is of, uh, is of value to understanding the Greek of the New Testament. But now, how did this all happen as far as the Jews were concerned? Aramaic, see, I remember when I was a young student, whatever, in my mind, Aramaic was kind of a corrupt dialect of Hebrew or something like that. That's not the historical situation. Aramaic was a very important language in the ancient uh, uh, world. You remember when, um, when the Assyrians attacked Jerusalem and uh, there was a siege on the city and uh, the, the Assyrian official speaks to, uh, to the uh, Hebrew officials and they speak in Hebrew and the Hebrews say, don't speak to us in Hebrew because the people will understand you. Speak to us in Aramaic. You see, even the Assyrians used Aramaic as kind of the common diplomatic, the, the lingua franca, if you will, way back then. After the destruction of Jerusalem in 586, when the uh, Jews were taken to Babylon, in the course of time they adopted Aramaic as their language. And uh, those who returned to Palestine um, continued to use it. Now, here again, in the past century, there has been some debate as to whether or not Hebrew had disappeared as a spoken language. A uh, hundred years ago, most people would have said yes. All right, uh, you do have the Hebrew of the Mishnah. That's the Hebrew of the, of the rabbinic scholars. But that was just a kind of an artificial language, not part of the spoken tongue. Something like Latin became for you know, priests in the Roman Church and so Roman Catholic Church. Uh, however, when the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered and, and some other documents, for example, the letters of Bar Kokhba were discovered as well, and some of them were written in Hebrew, it became clear that Hebrew was still spoken by many Jews. Nowadays, the consensus seems to be that uh, if you lived in Palestine, you were very likely to hear three languages spoken. Hebrew, perhaps, was more common in Jerusalem and Judea. Aramaic, more common in Galilee. Do you remember in the story of, of uh, the Passion, when somebody says about Peter that his dialect, you know, betrays him? Uh, possibly, not certainly, but possibly it indicates that uh, here's Peter, primarily an Aramaic-speaking Jew, and now he's in Jerusalem, and the people who are used to the, perhaps the Hebrew of Jerusalem, can tell that he's, he has a different accent. I don't know for sure exactly what was going on there. But uh, perhaps Hebrew more dominant in the south, and Aramaic more dominant in the north, but uh, it appears that most Jews probably would have been able to converse in both languages. On top of that, you have Greek. After the conquest of Alexander, as we have noticed, uh, Greek 
uh, had become the lingua franca throughout the Mediterranean world, and uh, it is very likely that most people in Palestine could communicate, at least to some degree, in Greek. Um, it's quite possible here again that people up in Galilee, remember how Galilee was referred to as Galilee of the Gentiles. There was a lot of contact with Gentiles, and so the Jews there probably would have had to be able to, uh, to communicate. How polished their Greek might have been is another area of debate. You know, for example, some people have argued that um, Peter couldn't possibly be the author of First and Second Peter, especially First Peter, because it is written very elegant Greek. And Peter, a fisherman from up, uh, you know, in uh, in Galilee, would not have had that sharp a command of the Greek language. Um, so there is some, but but others argue no. You see, that there's so much evidence of the degree um, uh, to which Greek was spoken in Palestine that it is not out of the question that the majority of the population, you know, could handle Greek reasonably well. They probably would have had an accent when they spoke, but uh, they would have known the language well enough to communicate and possibly to write and so on. Anyway, we're. Moving now to uh, to Greek as opposed to Hebrew and Aramaic. Yeah. Closer. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Or German and Dutch. Yeah. Um, let me give you a couple of examples so you see what what differences are. There are a lot of there are a lot of words that are exactly the same, just exactly the same. Um, then you have a group of words that are basically the same because they come from the same root, but because there are a few uh, phonological differences. For example, uh, the word for gold in Hebrew, it's zahav. In Aramaic, it's dahav. So this... Um, correspondence between a Z and a D, not in every word, but in, in certain words. Uh, so you could probably understand somebody speaking. Uh, it would sound funny at first, and maybe it would get a little confusing, but after a while you'd, you'd begin to sense the patterns of differences and, and be able to, uh, to make out a lot of what was going on. Um, but the problem with making a uh, a statement like this is that here again you have to take into account that even within Aramaic, you know, in the course of time there would have been developments, and uh, there are a number of changes that occur in Aramaic that would have made it a little bit more difficult or whatever. But yeah, they're very very closely related. First of all, um, whether or not they spoke Hebrew, they certainly would have spoken Greek. You know what I'm saying? In other words, as as a uh, Jewish family living in the diaspora, namely in Tarsus, they certainly would have spoken Greek. And, and, and Paul's, you know, Paul's language does not, never, as far as I can remember, never betrays, um, you know, somebody struggling with a, with a second language. That was obviously the language that he, has, he had learned in his childhood and, and uh, spoken, communicated with, and so on. Uh, I think the expression Hebrew of the Hebrews has more to do with his lineage than 
with um, you know, the language that they might have spoken. There was no mixture, perhaps, in his family. It may also mean, however, that Paul is... One possibility is that Paul is saying, look, even though I was brought up in the diaspora, we were not a hell-nice family in the sense that we had uh, changed our traditions and our culture and so on. And perhaps, you know, there is an indication that they continued, that they preserved the Hebrew or more likely the Aramaic language because, you know... Um, when uh, in, in the book of Acts, uh, we're told that Paul was speaking to the multitude and, and he began to speak in the Hebrew dialect. That's almost certainly Aramaic. But it would have been called the Hebrew dialect because it was a language spoken by the Hebrews now, you see. Um, so the, the answer to you is I'm not sure. It doesn't have to mean that, that, that they spoke Hebrew. But it is possible that the expression may have um, assumed that they were not so fully Hellenized that all they spoke was Greek. And that's also very reasonable because if, if, uh, if Paul came, let's say, when he was 12 or 13 years old to Jerusalem, and then he, he was trained in the Bed Midrash, the, uh, you know, Gamaliel or whatever, he would have had to be able to communicate even before he got there. So I'm sure that is to some degree true, but I don't believe that the expression has primary reference to the language. Mm -hmm. A Latin name. Yeah. He was a Roman citizen, and he, so he would have had both a Jewish name, Shaul, Saul, and a Roman name, Paulus, and probably a cognomen or whatever. Maybe Paul is the cognomen. I forget now. Probably another name on top of that. Okay. Now, this thing that you were supposed to read on uh, Biblical Greek, all I want to do is uh, call attention to a few things that may be a little difficult to um, get a handle on. And, and here again, I'm not um, um, expecting you to get every detail here. For example, let, let me say just a little bit about pages um, 6 through 8. Uh, there's a lot of detail on those pages that you do not need to, to memorize or anything like that, but I think it is important for you to at least understand the principle that is going on here. The principle is this, that just as I was telling you that linguists are able to distinguish these kinds of uh, connections among languages, so in the case of Greek itself, see, Greek is a language within the Indo-European family. Then Greek, you have these dialects, and you have that diagram that I have on page 8. I guess I should have put it upside down, but it doesn't matter. So, so you have this common Greek language that would have been spoken in prehistoric times. And then you have a basic division between the West, Western and Eastern forms of, of the Greek languages. And then they, these develop more specifically into those five major dialects. Those five major dialects, Doric and Northwest on the one hand, then Eolic, Arcado-Cyprian, and Ionic Attic on the other hand, uh, were widely spoken in historic times, particularly in the um, period that we know as, as the classical Greek period classical Greek period, say from the 6th century 
B.C. to the 4th century B.C. Um, looking at the differences between these various dialects can be uh, helpful in getting a sense of what, what goes on when we speak about dialectal differences. And so just to, um, to expand a little bit on, on the uh, material here, look at page 6. Uh, the language is spoken in Athens, which was the dominant um, city from a cultural point of view. And among the um, uh, characteristics of this dialect, which we call the Attic dialect, the first one is a, a plethora of particles that defy translation. These were needed to convey nuances that in English we express by means of sentence intonation. Such intonation was not possible in ancient Greek because voice pitch was a function of the individual word, not the sentence. Now, what in the world does all that mean? Uh, you know, uh, at least those of you who uh, have had um, a little bit of Greek before you came, that uh, from time to time you come across some uh, little particles, little words in Greek that you, know, you sort of leave untranslated because you're not too sure what to do with them. And um, you go to a dictionary and might give you some sort of meaning, but, but you, you begin to realize that these are not real words. I mean, they seem to have a, a different type of function. If you read the older um, Greek, you find many more of these, and they drive you crazy. You don't know what to do with them. You end up not translating them and feeling guilty about it. Um, <laughs> Now, what's going on here? You recall that um, the accent marks that we use in Greek, which were invented in the Middle Ages to help people who were forgetting all this stuff, indicate not simply the syllable that receives the stress. It indicates uh, a difference in the pitch value of that syllable. So if you have a... Um, a Greek word with the acute accent, what that means is that this syllable is pronounced with approximately, it's a fourth or a fifth, I think it's a, a musical fifth higher, anthropos, something like that. The grave accent is a fifth lower, um, you know, we all, something like, I don't know. And then if you have a circumflex, which only goes over a long syllable, you go up and down, right? Now, here's the problem. If you have a, a language where differences in pitch are a function of the word, that uh, restricts your intonation for the sentence in English. We're constantly going up and down when we speak, you see. And um, it happens all the time. You do not speak any sentence in English. Even people who supposedly are tone deaf and tend to speak in the monotone and so on, if you listen really carefully, or even better, if you have a little machine to, to record all this, you find that there's all this inflection going on, all these, these pitch changes. And it's amazing how much information we communicate through those in, through that kind of intonation. 
Now, if you're speaking Greek, you can do that because each word has you know, a relative pitch that you have to maintain. Then how do you communicate all these subtle differences? You, know? you use those particles. Now, by the time you get to New Testament times, and even earlier, the pitch system apparently had broken down already. And so you have uh, a greater use of uh, sentence intonation, presumably, and that is why you have fewer of these particles. Now, that's an important concept, which uh, maybe takes a little time to get a handle on. Um, the same is true of... Um, the question of vowel length. I just mentioned that you know you have a circumflex only over a long syllable. Well, what does a long vowel mean? And uh, English students have a problem with this because in English we we use the term a long vowel to describe certain vowels that are really diphthongs. You know, you say the um, the uh, a in um, came. That's really diphthong because you're gliding. Hey, there's a gliding of your tongue there, and, and, and there's a qualitative difference. But there, are many like most languages probably make a distinction between a short and a long vowel, and that means exactly that. It's pronounced the same, only it is held a little longer. Uh, most languages. See, it's difficult for us in English to even imagine, you know, people making distinctions purely on, on that ground. But the difference between an Omicron and an Omega, at least in the classical period, was purely one of length. So that in Romans 5.1, there's a textual problem. We'll talk about textual problems in a couple of weeks. But... Um, Having been justified and so on, we have peace, echomen, and indicative, but there are some important manuscripts that instead of the Omicron have the Omega. Now, the difference between these two would be echomen, echomen. E Omicron, echomen, echomen, echomen. Uh, that's all. And if that seems a little strange to you, again, I tell you that most languages, you know, in Arabic, I always get this mixed up, but um, second here. I probably have it wrong. But anyway, just to make the point, um, if you say Jamil, um, that's beautiful or beauty or something. But if you say jamil, 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 that's a camel. So uh, you've got to be very careful when you're courting uh, a young lady. Um, this, you see, this distinction in vowel length, which was so important for the language in the earlier periods, again, had apparently disappeared or or had significantly broken down, is, is the least we can say, by New Testament times. Subsequent to the New Testament period, let's say when some of, the, some of the manuscripts were produced in the 3rd and 4th centuries, there was no distinction whatever between these two sounds as there is in today modern Greek. In modern Greek, there's no distinction whatsoever between these two sounds. So you can see what happens here. 
if you're in a scriptorium where manuscripts are being produced, somebody's dictating and several people are copying, you say echomen, one scribe hears echomen, the other one echomen. And, and that is one of the sources of variations uh, in the uh, Greek manuscripts, not only of the New Testament, of any book. Okay. Um, now, other details here, uh, very free word order. Uh, again, those of you who, have, who are at the point where you're reading some of the more difficult passages in the New Testament, there's something like um, in the book of Acts and in the epistle to the Hebrews, you find that the order of the words is, is very perplexing sometimes. In Greek, uh, it doesn't matter because over against Greek, uh, over against English, where the position of a noun indicates whether it is the subject or the object, not the same thing to say the dog bit the man and the man bit the dog, uh, but that position is irrelevant in Greek, you see, because you can indicate the subject and the, and the object simply by the endings. And um, so in, in the ancient, in the more ancient form of the Greek language, you have a lot of variation. In the process of time, you have less of this. And so when you get to New Testament times, particularly because most of the books of the New Testament are written not in a, in a uh, self-consciously literary style, but they approximate, it approximates the language that people speak. And when people speak, probably even in the ancient form of the language, there's a tendency for certain patterns, you see, and, and there's more uniformity in the word order. And that is what you more likely see reflected in, um, uh, in the New Testament. Um, now, let's move on to the next dialect that I have here, the uh, uh, dialect spoken in Ionia. And uh, you have the, the map there to help you a little bit with that. Very important here is the uh, fact that many words which in the Greek that you're familiar with, and by the way, the Attic Greek is, is quite close to the New Testament form, or that's not the best way of putting it. Let me put it this way. The form of Greek that you find in the New Testament descended from the Attic language, okay? Uh, Ionic is a little different. It's quite close, but different. And especially obvious if you start reading, a, uh, say, something from uh, <coughs> Herodotus, the Greek historian who wrote in the Ionic style, you would find um, that the word for heart would be cardia instead of cardia. And, uh, and you see that as a pattern. Uh, the pattern is has to do with the long alpha uh, in certain contexts. You also find some uncontracted forms. You see, in the Attic, the Attic dialect was, was a more innovative type of language. Um, the, the examples that I give you here, for example, in the, um, uh, those of you who have, who have already gone over the contract verbs in Greek, contract verbs, um, I gave you the example there of kaleomene instead of kalumene.
Now, you see, this is the original form. In the Attic dialect, there was a contraction of these two vowels to, the, uh, to this other sound, which is just one sound. You see, kalumene. Now, um, it's an important point, which I make a couple of times here. Attic Greek, which is usually what people think of as the great language, you know, of the ancient world and the epitome of this and the other, uh, was really quite a quote-unquote corrupt dialect. Now, you see, if you like the language, you don't use the word corrupt. You say it's dynamic. <laughs> if you're upset with the changes, then you say it's corrupt. So there are many people who say, you see, English today is getting corrupted <clears throat> because there are all these changes. No, it's just dynamic, you see. It is moving along with time and, and, and getting better all the time. It's not, it's not really a matter of getting worse or better. It's just that every language goes through certain kinds of, of changes for a variety of reasons. And some may be aesthetically pleasing to some and not to others. And, and uh, uh, some appear to... Um, create confusion and be illogical, or others uh, tend to be more precise. But every language has plenty of both, pretty and unpretty, logical and illogical. And uh, if you give me five minutes, I'll give you a long list of totally logical stuff in ancient Greek, um, as well as in Shakespearean English over against modern English and so on and so forth. Um, there are other examples of, um, of this uh, uh, tendency. For example, if you go down to about the middle of page 7 under Arcadia and Cyprus, the language spoken in Arcadia and Cyprus, the second characteristic given there is the sound wa represented with a letter called the degama, the degama, which looks like a neph. Uh, but it's it's a different thing. So instead of the term oikias in Arcadian and Cyprian and some other dialects, it will be woikias, woikias, with that wa sound. The wa sound disappeared from the Attic and Ionic dialects, but it was preserved in the other ones. That's another example you see of an, an innovative uh, character of the Attic dialect. Well. Um, we better quit that. What is of more um, direct significance to us uh, has to do with the changes that took place in the course of time, and particularly in what developed as the koine, hey koine, dialectos, meaning the common dialect. The point is that after the uh, conquest of Alexander, uh, the Attic, Attic Greek is taken to the rest of the Mediterranean world. And it is adopted by many people. This becomes the common Greek. It becomes a lingua franca. It, it means that even uh, Greek speakers whose native language is a different dialect uh, had to use Attic or to communicate more broadly in the, in the Roman Empire especially. And that's why it was called the common dialect. Uh, it also meant, by the way, that some of the more obvious distinctives of Attic were given up for uh, forms of the language that, that were 
more broadly accepted. For example, um, take the word thalassa. Now, you see, in Attic, if you were to pick up Thucydides, you will not find this word. You will find thalata, thalata. The pronunciation of the double tau instead of the double sigma was a distinctive of, of the Attic language, of the language spoken in Athens. And it was so distinctive, it was kind of stood out like a sore thumb. And therefore, in the common dialect, the tendency became to use the more common form in the other dialects, thalassa, instead of thalata, because thalata sounded so uh, parochial or something, you know. It was just too, too unusual for, for most of the people, and there are other examples of that kind of thing. Well, um, beginning with um, page 11, I give you some examples of these changes uh, in phonology. Um, you, uh, how, how do you know, you know, um, again, you know, most of the um, tapes back then have disappeared, so we don't know exactly how things were pronounced. But we do have a few ways of, of, of knowing how, this hap how things were pronounced. For example, sometimes a Greek grammarian may make a statement describing how... Um, Something's pronounced like this, not like that. Or you may find a word, a Greek word, transliterated to another language like Latin, and then you can see some distinctions. But one of our best sources are graffiti. You know, graffiti is a linguist, dies for graffiti. Because when somebody writes something in, in an ancient public bathroom or whatever, um, they're not thinking about, you know, what is the proper way to spell stuff. They just write it, the stuff, the way they pronounce it. Uh, it is also true of some of the papyri, which were the non-literary papyri, where people are writing, you know, spelling was not as standardized then as it is today. And so I give you the example there of the word uh, rabdos, uh, which in the papyri is spelled not with the beta, rab, dos, but with the upsilon. And what that probably tells you, in fact, almost certainly tells you, is that both of those letters were being pronounced differently, both the beta and the upsilon. First of all, the beta was being pronounced like a v sound, as it is today in modern Greek. And the diphthong, raudos, was being pronounced Ravdos, as it is today in modern Greek. So, uh, if you go to modern Greece today, and uh, you see this word, uh, it's not autos, but aftos, aftos. There are other changes, in particular, the merging of vowel signs, so that, um, for instance, um, All of these three vowels, and also these diphthongs, are pronounced. All of that is pronounced e. All of them e. Um, this uh, diphthong is no longer a diphthong. It's pronounced like an epsilon. 
Okay. And so on. And you begin to see many of these changes already manifesting themselves in the, uh, in the New Testament period, in the papyri, uh, and because of these kinds of misspellings. Um, well, some of the other stuff I think is a little bit more, uh, a little easier to figure out. Uh, very important um, for other purposes is the, uh, the developments of, uh, of the Greek language after New Testament times. Well, already in New Testament times, there was this movement called the Atticizing Movement because people were being, getting very upset about the corruption of the Greek language. And they started saying, hey, you've got to speak the way the great writers of, of old used to speak and write. And so they began, this was the Atticizing Movement. Let's go back to the Attic, pure Attic dialect. This created a division in the language of the Greek-speaking people that lasted for many, many centuries. And even today, uh, let's say, prior to the 1970s, it was a disaster. Um, that's not the best word, but it was very confusing because you had two distinct forms of the language in, in Greek, the Timotiki and the Katharevusa. And, uh, you know, one was the popular speech, the other one was the accepted way of uh, speaking and writing. And some of that lingers on, but it goes back all the way to about the New Testament period uh, when there was this atticizing reaction against the common dialect. Please make sure that you have finished reading this, and I'll, I'll take another 10 or 15 minutes, um, probably less than that, on Monday uh, to conclude this discussion. Then we'll move on to translation. And uh, then we should have some time for questions uh, in preparation for the exam.